are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. Today, our special guest is Desmond Lomax, co-director of the public safety practice for the Arbinger Institute, and someone who's doing a lot of really interesting things right now, both in, uh, in that space and someone I'm just really excited to have on our on our show today uh, to talk more about it, Desmond. Why don't why don't we kick it off by giving a little background about you, where you came from? How, you know, I'm always interested in the journey, how you got here, right? This is what you're doing today, but I know you have a pretty interesting journey uh, to get to here. Yes. So anyway, aloha um, to my beautiful people. Um, hopefully, you'll let me come to Hawaii. If you could give me some cool like past, like some past or exemption. Um, to, you know, I would greatly appreciate it. Desmond Lomax with one L. Um, so my back, my background is, uh, I got, it's crazy. So I, I grew up in a, I grew up just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, um, I'm African-American. I grew up with amazing, hardworking parents. Um, they both work for the federal government. Um, they always told me, Desmond, you're kind of lazy, so you need a desk job. And uh, I showed them, I got a desk job. And so, <laughs> so I came out to, uh, I went out to BYU and uh, on, a, on an athletic uh, scholarship, played football there, did a little bit of schooling, um, kind of got it figured out that football wasn't going to work. So I finished my schooling with a bachelor's degree in political science. Uh, at the same time, I got a job working for the Utah County Sheriff's Office as a correctional officer. Um, and then my career is like a blur after that. So I got a master's degree in mental health counseling. So I became a therapist. I became a sergeant at the at the jail. And then I, once I became a therapist, became a therapist at the state prison, which is 45 minutes up the road. And then there became a regional manager and then the director over the community programming unit for the state of Utah. And so the last three or four years, I was developing programs to keep people out of prison, which was fantastic. Um, once I finished my 20 year career in January, I got a job with Arbinger um, and we're working with um, uh, public safety organizations across the country. I work a little bit in the private sector as well, but mostly what I do is I work with law enforcement agencies, correctional agencies, organizations, large scale, small scale, um, just helping people turn outward, have, helping people see people as people. Um, what I do is incredible. I'm, I'm humbled by the opportunities, but I'm super excited what I do. What drew you to law enforcement? You studied political science. You're a football player. What was the original draw uh, to law enforcement for you? You know, I had someone ask me that the other day. And, and law, they said, like, so, so ex-football players, you know, in college get into two things. Either they're sales, right? They're selling right. stuff. Or, or, or public safety, they're, they're, they're helping people. But it was a job initially that like my physical ability and so my ability to be physical was helpful, mm. right? So having a physical posture is helpful. People don't wanna wrestle me, right? They yeah. wanna talk to me, right? <laughs> and so, so, so I got into the field because there were tons of openings at the time I got in and, and the jobs, I, the field I wanted to get into youth corrections and youth counseling I couldn't get a job. I couldn't even get an interview. Like, and so, so I was trying to get this job, but this job's hiring every month. So I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll get into corrections um, until I get something else figured out. And 20 years later, I finally got something else figured out. 
But well, even before that, you started working on your master's, right? T- tell me about that decision to start to pivot towards mental health ca- counseling. What was your experience that led you to say, because that, you know, in, in a career, 10 years into a career to say, I'm going to go get my master's and it's going to be in a field that isn't the in the field that I'm working in. I mean, that's that's a courageous move. There had to be some motivation there that that pushed you to go and do that, because I'm sure that was a sacrifice for you and your family to be doing both of those at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, you bring up a good point. That's a good question. Um, I was miserable. Um, I think I think corrections um, is hard work in the sense that um, we're not rehabilitating people. Right. We incarcerate people. Um, and so after a while, when you have this desire to help and you get into a helping field and you're not helping anyone, right? Like you feel you could. Um, I, I had this, I knew I needed to be a therapist. I had this really underlying fear. I, I wasn't smart enough to do it. So once I was able to be so miserable that I was willing to address that fear of going back to school is when I did it. And uh, it really put me in a position where I feel much more helpful now. And you started doing therapy, you said, w- w- in in public safety, right? I'm assuming that was with public safety officers or was w- or was that with uh, people that were incarcerated? It was with the it was with the people that was incarcerated and officers. The officers was it was the unofficial stuff. So mm-hmm. my job was being you know working with people in a substance abuse program at the prison. But unofficially, I was developing programs for for POST, which is the training and standard facility. I was developing wellness programs for law enforcement officers. The second I got there, I was developing programs, how to help law enforcement officers work with stress, how to work through trauma, how to, you know, so, so, so I, so I had like this dual mission right out the gates to help empower the, the people that were incarcerated, but us also help empower the correctional officers who were as miserable as I was. Cause I was, you know, I know what it was like to be a, a miserable correctional officer. Right. What connections did you start to make? Cause I think this is sort of interesting, right? Because you're now bridging two worlds, right? You're, you're in the mental health world of people who have been in the, in the correctional system now, right. Uh, for breaking the law. And you're in the mental health world of the people who are in charge of, with enforcing those laws and actually incarcerating the people that that you're trying to help. I'm curious because I think that's an interesting bridge uh, to be making between you know those two groups that that typically are somewhat different, very different groups, right? Uh, what sort of connections did you start to make? You know, um, they were both sick. Both groups were sick. Both groups were healthy. Both groups didn't feel seen or understood. Um, at the end of the day, both groups were human beings that needed love, consideration, patience, and 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 uh, and an ability to see their potential and hold on to their potential. And you don't let go. I don't care if you got these tats all over you that says kill black people. I don't care if you've got like, you know, you're some hardcore guy in this particular crew. I'm going to hold on to that potential that's within you. And mm-hmm. I think I think law enforcement officers, correctional officers in particular, are filled with so much potential and so much talent. And then your job comes down to 
I'm just going to sit here and hope no one tries to hurt each other. Right. Like, that's what your job. Like I had all this potential. I could communicate. I could work with people. I could teach. I could train. I could develop programs. And I'm sitting at a desk hoping people don't stab each other. That was the extent of my job at one point. And so both, both parties needed support, consideration, and, 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 and things within the system to help them maximize who they are. You know, it's interesting that the term correctional officer or correctional facility, I want to make a connection now to Arbinger. You do a lot of work with the Arbinger Institute. Arbinger has this leadership pyramid or the peace pyramid. It's the pyramid of many names, uh, I like to call it. I think it's the influence pyramid uh, right now. And, and at the top of that pyramid is correction. Right. And, and Arbinger makes this point that I think is a really important point that a lot of times when we're stuck in an inward mindset, uh, you know, in my work, when we're in conflict, our go to is to correct. Uh, we're going to correct people. And and w- when we're doing it, we're, we're making a couple of mistakes. Right. First of all, we're externalizing the conflict. It's, it's like I don't have any part in this other than to provide correction to you. And the second thing is this misunderstanding that somehow correction and correction alone is going to actually make a difference. It's actually going to do what it says it's going to do, which is correct, which I think we know it typically doesn't. And then Arbinger talks about everything that's beneath that in the pyramid, starting with outward mindset and then building relationships and building relationships with others of influence and listening to learning. Those are actually the effective things that motivate change uh, within people. But you're working in a system that in the very nature of the label of what you're doing is correct. And I'm curious when you encountered when you encountered Arbinger and and how that affected the work that you were doing and, and starting. Uh, I just think it's such an interesting little paradox that's there. I'm a correctional officer. And if I know anything about Arbinger, I know I'm, I'm, I'm literally operating in the least effective space that I possibly could be operating in. You, you know what, Chad, Tim, I could do this all day with you, brother. Like, literally, we need to have an extended, like, part eight of this because you see it very quickly because as a peacemaker, right, if in the process of peace, right, correction is, is not helpful until you develop deep relationships. So we've created systems in, the, in corrections, national systems in corrections, where we have people who are trying to correct people's behavior without building relationships with them. And even even worse, sometimes we're not even correcting their behaviors. We're simply housing them. We're just housing them. You're just gonna be there for the next six years because you have to be, because you're paying your debt to society. And you're gonna come out no better, even worse for some than when you came in. So our system in and of itself encourages this self-focused inwardness. um, And we're not utilizing the potential of the people that are incarcerated. We're not utilizing the potential of the people who are correctional officers because we haven't developed the necessary relationships for that potential to shine. Right. And I'm curious, when you start to to think, talk that message, (laughs) what's the reaction? Because, you know, at this point, it's easy to objectify people who have broken the law, people who have been convicted of crimes, 
people who are covered, like you said, with tattoos uh, and may have engaged in behavior uh, that that the mainstream society may see as, as deplorable. It's easy to objectify those people. And it's really hard to, to ask someone, build a relationship with an object, right? Build a relationship with this person that isn't really a person to me, and I'm not even sure they deserve to be referred to as a person because of their their past behavior, their past actions. Mm. Chad, one quick side note to that point. We do it in society. Mm-hmm. Poor white people, people of color, right? We, we can objectify anyone, right? And then put a lens on what that means because we have no direct relationship with them. Right. So we don't even have to go to the prison system. We've got people in society going, well, if I'm not going to work harder, if black people don't want to work, why should we want to work? You know, they've got to want to work too. Like we've got people saying that in society, objectifying a whole people of color. And, and, and clearly there's no relationship there. Right. So, so, so we have people trying to give directions to people and trying to correct something and they have no relationships. So back to corrections. So, so the reality is, is that when you start to help people understand that building appropriate professional relationships make them more effective in their work, decrease their burnout, decrease their trauma, decrease all the things that are driving them nuts about their job, simply because they're choosing to see people as people. Um, it can be very effective, but in reality, I usually have people start at home first because they, they care about home. Start with that teenager you're struggling with. Start with your wife that you feel it's not listening to you. Start with your husband that feels ignoring you. Like usually a lot of times when I'm working in law enforcement, I'm like, hey, I know you're a little hesitant with the incarcerated people. Try your family. And Because I had my own examples. When I started it, I had an 11-year-old daughter that I could not talk to. And now we're best friends. Like right after this, we're going to go hit 7-Eleven, get a Slurpee. We're going to be laughing for the rest of the day. She's my home slice. Why? Because she is no more and she is no longer an extension of me. That's how I originally saw her. Hmm. She is now a beautiful 15-year-old young woman that I've been given the gift to love. And I embrace every day with that excitement and that curiosity in terms of who she is. It's, it's so interesting that you say this. This has been my experience as well. I've worked in the Middle East in conflict cases. I actually share a story in my book where I'm in the West Bank working with a bunch of Palestinians, and they're giving me a hard time because they know something that I also know. They don't think I know it, but I also know it, which was that we're not going to solve the Middle East peace process in the workshop that I'm going to do that day. And, and, you know, they come in with that sort of jadedness to the audacity for me to even show up, right? And, and what they don't know is that I also know that, but that's, that's, that's not what I'm there to do today. And, and, you know, it was really interesting because for like the first 15 minutes, maybe even closer to 30, I couldn't even get a word in. It was my workshop, but I couldn't even get a word in because I was getting, getting scolded on this point. And, and, and so what I had to start doing then was we started working backward. Okay, we can't solve that today. 
Uh, let's let's take the, the conflict a little closer to home. What about just the inner Palestinian conflict? Okay, we're not going to solve that today. What about the conflict in Ramallah, the, the city that we're in? Okay, we're not going to solve that today. What's going on in your home? How has this conflict impacted your relationship at home? And, and when we got there, not only were we able to start to make progress in powerful ways and probably the deepest ways that matter to us, but it also starts to open up possibilities about what, what can happen beyond that, what can happen beyond our homes. And so it's interesting to me on one hand that, that family can be a very safe place to start to practice these concepts, to practice dangerous love as opposed to strangers or you know people um, that you know I, I see as objects that I don't have any relationship with and I'm not even sure how to build it. But it's also interesting to me, I just wrote uh, a, a blog for Dangerous Love today, uh, five days before the election, how to talk to family, how to talk politics to family using dangerous love, because I've seen this huge polarization happening in families about the political discourse that's happening in the United States and really around the world. And what terrifies me is that it's happening even in families. Right, that even even in the people that should be the easiest for us to love and the easiest to us to talk to, uh, we begin to act, objectify, you know, even them. And so it's 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 fascinating to me. Yes, it can happen, and we can see how easily it can happen with someone in the correctional system, but it can also happen with a teenager. It also can happen with a parent who I think is watching the wrong news channel and who is getting brainwashed. It also can happen to a parent towards a child who thinks that they're at a university right now and they're getting brainwashed with all sorts of the other sort of wrong ideas. And and in every case, when we choose correction as our method of fixing that, I'm going to tell you what's wrong. I'm going to flood you with links. I'm going to send you all this information to show that you're wrong. It always backfires. Yes. Yes, fascinating. And and the and the interesting thing is, is that the person feels even less of a human, even more of an object with every email. Um, I've had people tell me, because I'm I'm pretty moderate for the most part. And I have people send me emails like, hey, you gotta you gotta read this person, or you gotta read this. And it's some ultra conservative or some ultra liberal, like African American, right? Like so, so. So not only am I like a little frustrated that they're sending the email, then they're saying, you're not good enough as an African-American. Like, I'm going to send you an email of this African-American that knows more than you do about your learned experiences. Mm -hmm. So like, then I'm really, Chad, I'm all caught up in it. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm ready to like, oh, you guys want to go, you know? And so, so the reality is, is that um, there's invitations, right? Um, I give the people I work with in public safety invitations. I tell them, you can always go back to your self-focused inward self. But what if, what if you take this invitation to see people, to heighten your level of curiosity? Like what could happen? You know, you can always go back to that old stuff and to the results you, you, you once had like that invitation. And so that is also a self thing too. Like in all this political upheaval and everything, I have to give myself that Desmond get, what is the invitation? Like, are you going to see people? Right. And, and even though they think differently and they have different political thoughts and practices, you know, it, yeah, 
like you got to give so that invitation I chose to give to people I got to give to myself first and it's a it's that's a powerful thing I have to invite myself I have to think about what are the consequences right of choice a versus choice b I can I can be right right yeah, I, I I can be right on the facts right morally right ethically and shove it down someone's throat, use it to humiliate or to shame uh, someone else, and feel quite good about that, right? Because I took the moral ground, high ground, or I, I, I took the stance, I defended what I know to be true and right, uh, and I put them in their place. And, and not only not get change, but actually get someone who's dug in even deeper and even more powerful resistance, or I can choose a path that is going to invite the change that I say that I really want uh, to see in my life, my family, in the world. And isn't it fascinating how often when we're, when we're posed with those two choices, we choose being right. <laughs> because it's, it, it's, it's self-affirming. It, it gives us, it, it feeds the justifications that, um, if you're familiar with Arbinger's work, drives all of this and, and frankly, it's easier. And though we complain and we talk about how miserable we are and everything else, there is something, to use Terry Warner's language way, way back, delicious about it, right? Yeah, there's something delicious when we burn that person. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I had the other day when my sense was telling me, don't do it, Desi, don't do it. And I'm like, wait a second. They came on to my Facebook account, justification. Yeah, they don't even know my learned experience justification. So in response, they're going to know my learned experience now yeah. justification. And and so I post this thing and I know I shouldn't have posted it. And, and it wasn't okay. Like, like, like I did prove a point, but like saying being right is not worth like damaging relationships because that's what we do even in minor, minute ways, macro and micro, we, we, we damage relationships. And, and, and one lady's like, well, I'm starting to think differently about what I think about you. And, and then I, I'm like, well, you can unfollow me, sister. You can unfriend me. I'll still love you. But on the end of the day, do you, right? You know, and I, and I, but then I had to backtrack and like, listen. And then I said this, so this, I said, listen, I am much more than Facebook. I am much more than what you see at church on Sunday. Like if that's the only, if you've only seen church Desmond and you've only seen Facebook Desmond, you've probably had about 20% of Desmond. Why don't you come over to my house and have dinner and spend time with the Desmond that, that I spent, you know, that, that 80% of the Desmond that you don't know yet. And I think we, we tend to take, and then you see this in conflict. We take 10 to 20% of what we know. We wrap it up in our justifications and that's just how it is. That's the gospel truth. Yeah. It's it's such a fascinating conversation. And and I'm having it with so many people, you know, since the book came out. Even though I don't mention political polarization once in the book. Um, I don't mention police officers in the book. I don't mention Black Lives Matter um, in the book, partly because the book was written if you know the cycle of books and how long it actually takes to get a book published, you know, well before George Floyd and, and everything that happened and well before the election 
ramped into full gear. But it's interesting how many people will say something to the effect of, man, I love these principles. They're so powerful. It's changed my relationship with, you know, fill in the blank, but it won't work here. Right? It's not going to work in the political world, or it doesn't work when you talk about police officers, or it doesn't work when it's applied to uh, Black Lives Matter um, individuals. It, it doesn't work there. And, you know, it's really interesting. I start my book deliberately in chapter one with the very first line being from someone who I've been working with, a Miriam, saying, But what if he's evil? Right, and I and I start that because I already know what the objection of the book is going to be for the people that are easy for us to love or who are slightly in the box with. Um, right, this all makes sense. It's going to be great. It's awesome. But for that person that we struggle with the most, whoever that is in our life right now, all of our justifications, all of our defenses come up, and they tell us it won't work here. And. Uh, yeah, and like, for one, that's why it's dangerous. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book. I didn't write the book for the easy ones. You don't need the book for the easy ones. You've been just fine without Dangerous Love or without Arbinger or anything else your whole life with the easy ones, right? It's for the hard ones. Yeah. You know what, Chad? You bring up a great point. People will say, but Lomax, what if they suck? <laughs> what if they suck? This is all yeah. great. But what if I've got evidence that these people just are terrible people, right? Yeah. And And... And, and you're exactly right. That's when I, I smile. They're like, what are you smiling about? I go, this, this is why we use this. Yeah. Like the very <laughs> principle of, of dangerous love, the very principle of I'm going to see you as a person, no matter how you behave, no matter what evidence I have, no matter all the things, I'm going to withhold some of that stuff and I'm going to be right here with you. It's just amazingly powerful. Yeah. It's amazingly difficult and amazingly dangerous, but amazingly powerful and impactful. Um, and, and I knew I'd struck gold when I started applying some of those principles in people that hated my guts after a year and a half when I, when I left after implementing some of these Arbinger principles in the organization I ran were crying. And I looked at them and I literally said, joking, why are you crying? You don't even like me. Mm. <laughs> and they're crying, shut up, Desmond. I'm like, you don't even like me. Why are you crying? You hate my guts. You told me that to my face two years ago. The reality is in the midst of that, and I literally had a person said, I do not like you. I literally said this to them two years before, they, before this moment. Listen, you may not like me now, but I have a way, I have a way of rubbing off on people and eventually you will, right? Yeah. And, and, and that philosophy and mentality um, is what changes society. It's what changes organizations yeah. is what changes. Like, like I'm gonna rub off on, you're gonna see the best of me and I'm gonna mm -hmm. rub off on you. So no, it's, it's amazing. I, I say something else too on the like one, Desmond. I'm not, t I didn't say dangerous like. Uh, I, I said dangerous love. And there's a difference between like and love. And, and I think this is a hard concept because, the, you know, these words in the English language mean so many different things. But I cannot like someone and still love them. I cannot agree with someone, vehemently disagree with someone, and still love them. Because the sort of love I'm talking about is not the sort of love that means like. 
It's not the sort of love that means infatuation. It's not the sort of love that's the same love that I have for my best friend. It's the sort of love that says that your needs, desires, dreams matter as much to me as my own. Whether they're mine or not, whether I see them that way or not. And I think that that's such a hard thing to, to wrap our, our minds around because, of course, it's easy to love the people that we like. Uh, and it's hard to love the people that we don't. But I'm not trying to convince you to like a point of view or a behavior that you don't like, right? I've got, I've got a 13-year-old, and, and I've been trying for years to get her to like anything other than quesadillas or ramen or pepperoni pizza. Those are the three things. That's all she'll eat. I, we try all different things. She doesn't like them. I can't make her like something that she doesn't like, right? Um, that's that. You know, fair enough. And 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 I think that that's a really important point here um, when we're working in these sorts of settings. I'm not asking you to believe something that you don't believe, to hold a value that you don't that you don't hold, but I am asking you to see their humanity and see why it's important to them. And to see why just like the things that you hold and believe are important to you, um, they're important to them. You know, So when we're talking about politics, I say, you know, one of the things you have to understand is when your loved one, whoever they are, reach out, reaches out to you, one, one way is to be offended. I can't believe they're sending me this email or this, this link or, you know, again, trying to get me to donate to this political campaign. The other way to look at it is this is something that's really important to them. It's core to their identity. It's something that they deeply believe. And when they're reaching out, they're not reaching out to offend. They're reaching out to be helpful. They're doing it the wrong way. <laughs> Fair enough. And it doesn't actually feel like help. But the intent probably is actually this means so much to me. That that I want, I'm sharing you. I'm sharing part of my life with you. I'm sharing, you know, what what matters to me to you, and you know, when we see it that way, um, we don't have to agree with it. We don't have to buy or donate or do whatever it is they do, but we can see the intent in a very different way. No, you're ex- you're exactly right, Chad. And and I've gone through that development. And my initial pitfall to what you were saying was this. What was an educational or theoretical pursuit to you was violence to me. Mm. And, and I had to recognize that people were meaning well, and I had to start seeing them as people. And I, had, I actually also had to start recognizing that their ideas of racism and difficulties and all this political stuff that we get to have not been a violent pursuit for them. Yeah. And I had to show enough compassion um, to to help them to be able to articulate myself in a way so they understood like to the depths of kind of of what this meant for me. But mm. at the same time, that takes love. That's take what you're yeah. talking about. To, to be able to see someone in a way that you can reframe maybe some of the energy um, that comes along with the hurt and violence that you've seen in your life. Yeah. And be able to articulate it in a way, dude. I see you. Let me let me explain this in a way so you can understand what, how it impacts me. Yeah. And and that's the part. Like I, it took a while to develop yeah. because people are sending me stuff and they don't understand the violence that is associated with mm-hmm. some of these topics um, that I've been directly involved in throughout my life. But that so even more so in those circumstances, I have to see other people. Um, and see their hopes and dreams and, and what they're trying to accomplish 
so I can maintain that relationship. Because it will change my efforts. It will change yeah. how I engage things. And look, it's, it's massively unfair for someone who's experiencing violence because of someone's words or actions to be asked, see the motivation, see where they're coming from, and not just feel the violence, uh, because that's real. Um, and and just, as, just as their world is real to them, your world is real. And, that, and those emotions that you're feeling and the things that you're feeling because of you know, something that someone posts or says to you is real. And it, it's, it is unfair. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, if fairness is the, you know, fairness and love also don't always go hand in hand. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I grew up or in grad school um, studying uh, from a man, Wallace Warfield, who was, a, you know, a protege of Martin Luther King. And, and it really uh, was the first person that handed me his book, Strength to Love, which Dangerous Love, uh, you know, is, is a very um, very, very clear generated in, in large part from um, King's book, Strength to Love. And, and when he handed me the book, he asked me, you know, what do you know about Martin Luther King? And of course, I thought, oh, I know a lot. You know, I, 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 he's a hero of mine. I can tell you all these things. And he's, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you like what you know about his life. I want to know, know about what you know about what he did, the process, the strategy behind nonviolence and nonviolent love. Um, you know, what was, the, what was the deeper running philosophy that made the civil rights movement um, in the 1950s and 1960s so transformative? And the answer was, I didn't know Jack, uh, right? And it wasn't until I read that that I started to see something that I thought was extraordinary, which was King was calling on his congregations. He was a, he was a minister, you know, first of all, um, to love their enemies. And then in the trainings they would do th- for protest, they were literally role-playing and training with people how to how to handle police brutality that's going to come in there when someone pushes you how do you handle that when someone hits you with a baton or tear gasses you how do you respond to that and you know as i was going through it part of me was like this is massively unfair <laughs> right what he's asking when people are already being mistreated the way that they're being mistreated to take even more mistreatment and instead of retaliating to respond in love and to not just do it behaviorally, but do it at that deepest level of that mindset of that way of being um, was, was incredible. But then, you know, King was pragmatic as well. And, and one of the reasons he was asking was because it was going to work. And as unfair as it was in the moment, it was going to lead to the outcome, um, the promised land, as he said, in many occasions um, that, that, they was look, that they were looking for. And so, you know, I, sometimes I think we have to balance what's fair because what you're talking about is massively unfair, um, that the person that is, that is giving the violence, um, that we're asking the person who's on the receiving end of that to be the one, um, right, to respond with dangerous love and not asking the person that's per, uh, perpetuating the violence to do it. But, but part of the reason they ask is there is because it is the thing that is the transformative action that gets you to the quote unquote um, promised land and retaliating with violence um, gets us in a deeper and darker spiral of, of, of despair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was said beautifully, by the way, Chad. And, and, and I will add to that 
um, that it is often extremely difficult um, when people who are being violent um, don't recognize their violence. <laughs> and, and, and when you do show a level of humanity, um, I think, and you give that invitation of humanity, I think they start to see themselves differently. And so, so one of the responses to that answer um, is that by responding with peace and love and humanity, um, it's reflecting something back upon someone else. We don't expect results. That's not why we do it. We, we do it um, in a way, and what I teach correctional officers and law enforcement officers is there's a level of professionalism that requires humanity because we're engaging people in their worst moments. And that invitation is what heals us. Whether the other person responds or not, it doesn't matter. But that invitation of humanity in law enforcement will heal us, will remind us of why we do what we do, will connect us to the bigger reasons um, of why we do our job every day. And I just think, anyway, it was beautifully said. And I see that, and that, that's, that's at the core of why we do our work, our, our arbiter principle work with law enforcement, because we recognize that people are gonna come at us, they're at their worst moments yeah. in law enforcement. But, but my ability to see and engage humanity in the worst moments is giving an invitation, a powerful invitation that traditionally solves problems than responding with, with like violence or higher levels of violence. Yeah. It, you're, you're absolutely right. And I wanna highlight something that you said there because I was talking about the pragmatic results. We don't do it for those results. We do it because it's the right thing to do. We do it because seeing someone's humanity is the right call, regardless of whether seeing them is going to help them see me or not. And we talk a lot about this, right? That when I ask people, we do this exercise where people stand back to back and they're elbowing each other. And I tell someone, okay, now now go practice dangerous love, do your thing. And in, in most cases, people try to move in front of the other person, uh, right? And, and go eye to eye. And then if it's me, I'll close my eyes, I'll move around. You know, They'll try to chase me down. And I sort of make the point that what you did there was that you thought dangerous love is really about when getting them to see you, right? Getting them to see your humanity and, under, and, and understanding an important principle that when we see humanity, it invites... It invites something powerful, but really that's not the most dangerous move. The most dangerous move is seeing theirs, right? Not trying to get in front of them and make them see yours. And, um, but it's also true that the effect of that <laughs> in many, many cases is it becomes a powerful invitation for the other person, as you said, in that reflection um, to see themselves differently and then to see you differently um, as well. Um, but that's not, I think it's really important point that that's not the reason um, we do it. And so Desmond, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, we're in the middle of this in, the, in, in our country right now in big ways, and you're in the middle of this, um, right? Working um, with public safety officers and, and, and I'm curious, you know, what, what do we do? Right, because you have. Let's just think. Let's just think for a minute about everything that's been happening since George Floyd, and the in the responses that that it, that we've seen sort of throughout the world. Some peaceful protests, some violent protest, um, some uh, law enforcement 
um, response that is that is peaceful and respectful, some law enforcement response that is that is violent, um, some reforms that are happening, um, and and some some people that are digging their heels in, um, and you're working in this space right now. Um, and you have all of this experience behind you um, as a former correctional officer, as a, a mental health therapist, um, as an African-American, as someone who's been deeply engaged in Arbinger, as a father. You have all of these lenses in your life. Um, how do we help ourselves? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think there's several steps. Um, anytime a person is protesting, at least in my peer view, they don't feel seen or heard. Mm. So we need to ask ourselves, have we established processes to allow people to be seen and heard constantly in our communities? Why are we waiting for problems to happen to all of a sudden have to see someone or hear someone? Why can't we create systems in which we can see and hear people if I'm in a law enforcement organization, I want to be able to see and hear people and their problems and their concerns before their problem goes. So that so that's one piece. But please, creating creating structures that allow people to be heard and seen, so that they don't have to march. Why do we have to march? March is cold outside. Uh uh. Lieutenant so and so, Sergeant so and so. I I talk to him every week. He understands our community. I think that's one thing. The other thing is, is um, until I understand what real poverty is, until I understand what it means to be, to have nothing and then to not see any way out of it, right? Until I'm able to see people in a way in which they're existing, like at these lower levels, um, of our society at lower socioeconomic levels of our society where people are struggling and suffering on a day-to-day -day basis until I can have a clear picture of that and be among that, I have to understand, I have to trust their learned experiences. So it really requires also a level of trust. Listen, I could debate with you all day, but I'm going to love you enough to trust you and to help you help yourself. And so I think there's a mix between providing an environment where people can communicate with you and then also providing an environment so you can truly see where they are and trust their experiences and love them in the midst of their experiences and help them through their experiences. And I think if we can all do that for each other, I think we're more likely to see less of what's dividing us because it's difficult to be divided when I see you and when I see me in you. It's so difficult. I had a conversation with a, with a guy. He's like, I grew up homeless and I made it. I'm like, dude, you know how valuable that experience is to grow up homeless and now you're like this, this amazing individual, Chip Youth. You're this amazing individual who, who's gone from this to that. Like, like what, what can you offer someone like now that you're in a different place how could you help an important and so so i think a lot of times we look at our own experiences and understand well why hasn't that person gone how come they can't i did it like instead of doing that we trust their experiences we tend to see them at a much deeper level 
And once we do that, we change. We change in such a much better holistic way to be more helpful than we've ever been. I think that's so powerful because poverty is dehumanizing, both for the person experiencing poverty and often the people that see poverty. We dehumanize it as a way of taking away that dissonance that we see when we have so much and they have so little, right? The, the easiest way to deal with that psychologically is, is to find a justification, dehumanization, blame, uh, you know, so that so the pressure is off us to feel connected to that person because it's uncomfortable to feel connected to people that are suffering. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And, and, and so we make that move. And so I, I think that's a, a huge point. Um, and, and it's interesting how poverty is also deeply connected to sexism, to racism, to the disproportionate um, impact that it has on people. It's double, triple dehumanizing um, at times. But I also think it's interesting to reverse that question and also think about what you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, that being a correctional officer or being in law enforcement in that system that they're in is also a dehumanizing system. And, and, and how do we recognize that as well for our law enforcement officers? So if we're outside of that world, that's not our world. How do we see their humanity? How do we see how the system sees and treats them? And, 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 and how do we also listen to and hear their experiences uh, and trust those experiences in a way so that we can get to collaborative problem solving instead of telling each, each other side what they need to do to change? You're exactly right. It goes both ways. And, and, and being the law enforcement officer that happens to be a person of color, like I've been in this like boom, 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 right in the middle of all this, like as it's been going on, Chad. And, and, and I say, so they're like, what do you say? What do you say? I go, law enforcement needs support. People of color need support. We all need support. We all need to stop being objectified. We all need to be seen as people. There are so many law enforcement heroes. I work with them every single day. They're so frustrated that people don't see them. And there's so many people of color. They're amazing people. And, and so everybody's frustrated. And so just like you said, the question is, am I willing to recognize this level of love, this dangerous love, where I'm choosing to trust people's experiences? And, and when there's a difficult, extreme circumstance that pops up, like George Floyd, can I still attach myself to all these other law enforcement officers that are doing things for the right reasons for the, doing the right way, following policies to a T, and they're just as disgusted. So can we work together? Can the law enforcement officer and the community and people of color work together and go, yeah, we're both disgusted by this and we want this to get fixed. And I think in that way, we're working collaboratively together instead of, you know, we're, we're still fighting on who matters instead of working together and saying, okay, if you don't feel you matter, let's fix that. Let's work together and fix that. And I think that's what people are looking for, just in that acknowledgement. I'm going to trust your experience, and I'm going to have enough energy, and we're going to work together to fix it. Those, those are powerful, powerful words, uh, Desmond. Uh, this has been a powerful podcast. I, I really feel like we're going to need to do a part two. 
at some point, as you said, we could we could talk for a while. You're a busy man, I know, and you're out doing great work. And I deeply appreciate your voice and um, and uh, your your life choices to be in the middle of of something that I know is both painful for you, uh, but also in in very powerful ways, like your desire to make things better and fix that. Uh, just just really powerful um, example and influence. And, and, and I hope this podcast will be powerful for people who are struggling with all this right now, like so many of us are. Thank you so much. And I don't even think you recognize how much of your mentor to so many people, whether they've taken your class or set in one of your presentations or seen you online. Um, I appreciate your mentorship. Um, people like you give me this energy to approach something so difficult. And so I think if we all could have this energy towards, hey, this is the hardest thing, that's where we're gonna go. And to me, this 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 divide between public safety and people of color and, and pop people in poverty, um, there are people doing the right things. There are solutions out there. And so it's my goal to bring light to those solutions, help organizations replicate those solutions and, um, Dude, I love it, man. This is this yeah. is great. I love what I'm doing. Hey, so I appreciate you. Thank you for being a mentor and, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I don't really feel like that goes both ways. Uh, and I, I'm learning so much too. And uh, really appreciate you, Desmond. Like I said, I, I promise our listeners, uh, given how engaged this conversation is, uh, I'll, I'll work to get him back uh, on the show soon. Um, thanks so much. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. <laughs>